G'day, g'day. My name is Ravi Naya, and welcome to the January 2021 episode of A Techno Legal Update, which brings you vignettes from the intersection of law and technology and a word or two about sport. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope you're all well and had a good Christmas. May 2021 be awesome, safe, and healthy for all of you and your families. And folks, um, before I go on, I have to point out, you know, some fantastic test cricket, um, certainly from a purist perspective, and I am a purist first and Australian fan second. I mean, to see a, an Indian team without their usual strike bowlers like um, Umesh Yadav, Mohamed Shami, or their superstar all-rounder, Mr. Ravendra Jadeja, the, to see that team save the Sydney test in the way they did, and also currently putting on a decent batting show in their first innings at the Gabba. Oh, just just marvellous, as Richie Benno would say. Anywho, back to the show. Uh, just the usual disclaimer, this is a purely independent production by me, uh, Ravi Naya, and it is not affiliated with anyone or any organisation in any capacity whatsoever. And I note that in addition to our Twitter page, at uh, Tech Legal Update, the show has a LinkedIn page and a Medium blog, um, obviously under its name, A Techno Legal Update. Please look us up. Um, I'll link to uh, both in the show notes. Re the Medium blog, um, I encourage you to check it out because um, I have put up some analyses of my own on uh, topics and stories ranging from solar winds to the Assange extradition judgment, the potential hacking of congressional computers during the insurrection at the US Capitol. Um, and Theodore Totsis uh, of the University of Wollongong, who guest co-hosted the show with me um, in December 2020. He has also put up some analysis of uh, Google's uh, removing news sites from search results obtained by certain Australians up there. So please, folks, check it out. Let us know what you think. And we're happy to continue the conversation with you. Anywho, speaking of continuing things, let's get right on with the show. Fair winds and following seas, folks. Let's get stuck right in. Our first article is a blog post from Twitter. Permanent suspension of at real Donald Trump. After reviewing two tweets from the US president's personal account, or the account, in light of their context, namely the, you know, insurrection and terrorist attacks on the US Capitol on 6th January, and the tweet's reception on and off Twitter, Twitter permanently suspended Trump's personal account because of, quote, the risk of further incitement of violence, specifically their breaching Twitter's glorification of violence policy. So as a bit of background, Twitter acted based on two tweets from the account on 8 January. Transcribed in Twitter's blog post, the president exhorts how... Uh, in these tweets, the president exhorts how the, quote, great American patriots who voted for him will, quote, have a giant voice, all caps, long into the future, and, quote, will not be disrespected or treated unfairly. He also states that he will not attend President-elect Biden's inauguration. These tweets were obviously posted merely days after the horrific violence at the U.S. Capitol, where Trump supporters broke into the building, stole federal property, assaulted police officers and journalists, and, per court filings and videos from social media, 
had come equipped with weapons, gas masks, ballistic vests, and flexicuffs. In the days after the horrible violence at the US Capitol, Twitter had warned all of its users that breaches of the Twitter rules, which are incorporated in the Twitter user agreement, quote, would potentially result in users being deplatformed. Twitter has been clear that its own public interest framework, which directly, which directly governs the accounts of parliamentarians and world leaders, does not exempt the latter from the Twitter rules entirely. In this instance, Twitter acted based on the tweets from Trump, uh, their, their context, namely the fractious US socio-political environment combined with, quote, an uptick in the global conversation in relation to the Capitol attacks, the impact of remarks from this president in general, quote, including to incite violence, and the account's activity in the weeks before the attacks. The specific framework that Twitter enforced here was its glorification of violence policy. The policy starts with the following sentences, quote, you may not threaten violence against an individual or a group of people. We also prohibit the glorification of violence. So Twitter users cannot, quote, glorify, celebrate, praise, or condone violent crimes, among other things, This includes uh, attacks carried out by terrorist organizations or violent extremist groups as defined by Twitter's terrorism and violent extremism policy. Twitter's glorification of violence policy seeks to break the chain of causation between violence and others replicating violence, and Twitter assessed the tweets from the president in question to be, quote, highly likely to encourage and inspire people to replicate the criminal acts that took place at the US Capitol on January 6, 2021. Factors guiding Twitter's assessment included the president's supporters seeing his planned non-attendance of Biden's inauguration as confirmation of the election result being uh, allegedly illegitimate, his supporters being encouraged by his planned non-attendance of the inauguration to view the event uh, and its venue as a, quote, safe target, his defining some supporters as, quote, American patriots, uh, which his supporters have interpreted as his approval of the attacks on the US Capitol, and the planning of further armed protests, including another attack of the US Capitol and state Capitol buildings on the 17th of January. So Twitter's action also included permanent deletion of accounts of several of Trump's most vocal supporters and 70,000 QAnon accounts. QAnon, by the way, is the baseless far-right conspiracy theory that favours Trump and has been labelled a domestic terrorism threat by the FBI. It has also moved to deploy more technology-based controls to speed up the review of harmful tweets by human moderators aggressively enforce its civic integrity policy in relation to election disinformation, especially since the result has been officially certified, as well as block content in violation of its rules for trending topics from trending. Additionally, uh, note that US federal prosecutors have charged dozens of people in relation to the attacks against the US Capitol. Investigators are assessing over 140,000 photos and videos. As reported by the Australian ABC News on 12 January, there are 25 
domestic terrorism investigations afoot, as well as uh, sedition and conspiracy ones being on as well. As of the morning of 15 January, the office of the US, of the acting rather, US attorney for the District of Columbia has brought 98 criminal prosecutions and opened investigations into more than 275 people. Trump also became, uh, we must note, the first US president to be impeached twice by the House of Representatives, uh, this time on the charge of, quote, incitement of insurrection. And note that Twitter is merely one of several private sector entities to have deplatformed or otherwise uh, cut or reduced ties with Trump and his organization. Facebook, Twitch, Snapchat, and YouTube are some social networks that have at least permanently banned Trump from their services or removed some of his content. Stripe, PayPal, Shopify, and Campaign Monitor have similarly moved to stop providing services and infrastructure to the Trump organization or the Trump campaign, while Salesforce told reporters that it had moved to prevent the Republican National Committee from using its services, quote, in any way that could lead to violence. Other significant organizations that are cutting ties with the Trump organization uh, include the City of New York, the PGA of America, and the organizer of the British Open, R&A. Deutsche Bank, longtime lender to Mr. Trump, has signaled it would also not be doing further business with him, uh, which is an interesting change from the years when it allegedly seemed willing to breach US anti-money laundering uh, legislation to keep Trump as a client. Uh, also, for sake of completeness, note that several major corporations that have been Republican donors, like Disney, Coca-Cola, Deloitte, Marriott, Morgan Stanley, Amazon and MasterCard, as well as your wealthy, um, high net worth individual donors, are pulling the plug on GOP donations. So what does all this mean? Well, Twitter's actions have ignited all sorts of speech. Funnily enough, including those from conservatives on Twitter, that the company is stifling their freedom of speech. It can be argued that the latter view is funny, or curious to put it kindly, because putting to one side the company's dominance over at least the American information environment, Twitter is a public listed company, not a government entity subject to any human rights obligations, at least prima facie, in relation to speech. And it's not forcing anyone to use its service. I argue that the two primary legal frameworks that govern Twitter's relationship with its users are contract law, per the Twitter user agreement, and corporate law. So firstly, per the Twitter terms of service, the terms are stated to form an agreement between the user and the company, i.e. the Twitter user agreement. And note that the company under the agreement is the one located in San Francisco. One may, subject to age and legal restrictions in the applicable jurisdiction therein, use Twitter only once they, quote, agree to conclude a binding contract with Twitter. Twitter is very clear that it, quote, will suspend or terminate one's account, quote, at any time for any or no reason. So a user agrees to provide Twitter the authority to ban them without a cause. Also, the list of reasons Twitter um, for which Twitter can ban a user is not exhaustive. 
Again, highlighting the discretion the user voluntarily hands over to the company. The stated reasons, uh, that list of reasons, it includes Twitter having a reasonable belief that a you know the user has violated the Twitter rules and policies. Uh, the twi- the user rather creates quote risk or possible legal exposure for the company, and it's providing services to the user quote is no longer commercially viable. So applying, say, just these three uh, potential reasons to the ban of Trump's personal account for violation of the glorification of violence policy, Twitter was acting per the contract that Donald Trump concluded with it. Um, And I'm saying Donald Trump concluded just for the sake of simplicity. One could even argue that Twitter could have banned him on the other two bases, uh, the other two reasons, in light of potential regulatory risk, uh, tainting of the Twitter brand, as well as a shareholder revolt if they kept Trump online. And the issue of a shareholder revolt brings us to corporate law. So, folks, uh, many of you who listen to this podcast uh, have done some corporate law, so you would know that Twitter, via its board, primarily owes legal duties to its shareholders to act in their best interests and, to grossly oversimplify, maximise the value of their investment in the company. By default, Twitter does not owe broader society anything. It is not bound by the, if we stick to the US context, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. If the company is to act, the primary metric, arguably, which Twitter's board and senior executives have to consider, is the impact on shareholders. Now, the metric can be gauged through considering financial risks to Twitter, like, you know, lower advertising revenues, a plummeting share price or potential damages payouts if it were sued by victims caught up in the violence at the Capitol. Or the board could consider non-financial risks engaging this metric, uh, such as serious reputational damage. Though Twitter's share price has fallen uh, around 10-12% to since deplatforming Trump for glorifying violence, it could be argued that Twitter's actions uh, are justified in the longer term, in light of the severe backlash from corporate America against Trump and the broader Republican Party, um, or members of the broader Republican Party with views similar to him, as well as the issue that brands uh, that are associated with Trump in any fashion whatsoever are facing with increasingly socially conscious consumers who are, quite frankly, disgusted by Trump. Twitter's directors and senior executives would not have wanted to be the US equivalent of, um, you know, Sky News or 2GB in Australia by losing advertising revenue because of allowing uh, misogynistic and extreme content on their programming. The board of Twitter would also have sought to mitigate potential regulatory risk from uh, Congress, cognizant of how the president-elect's party, the Democrats, will control both houses of Congress and thus all congressional committees tasked with designing potential regulation for big tech companies like Twitter. And uh, I note that the Democrats have seemed to favour a more interventionist stance in relation to Silicon Valley in recent years relative to what, uh, what it was during the Obama administration. Twitter's directors, um, if we focus on them, would also have had at the back of their minds the US's forthcoming AGM season or proxy season as it, as it as it can be called over there and the issues that may have faced with securing re-election if the company had not acted against Trump's account 
Uh, I'm assuming that the noises that may have been made by large institutional shareholders owning over three quarters of the company would have been especially influential in the decision making. These factors all militate, in my opinion, against the suggestion that Twitter is required to and did act solely per an ethical responsibility to society to deplatform someone endorsing acts of terrorism against the houses of his own country's legislature. Indeed, similar factors to what I've just talked about can be argued to have driven Amazon to boot Parler, which is a social network increasingly popular among right-wing extremists and terrorists, off its Amazon Web Services cloud hosting infrastructure, and Apple and Google to do the same with regards to Parler's app on the App Store and Google Play, respectively. In this regard, uh, I consider that focusing on this apparent ethical responsibility of Twitter, in this case, can be a distraction from the contract and corporate law issues at play, especially given the current state of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, specifically the provision that is Title 47 US Code Section 230 Subsection C Paragraph 1. Now, the March 2020 episode of this podcast dealt with uh, that provision, uh, which protects technological platforms from liability for content posted by their users. Repealing Section 230 has become the rallying cry for both sides of US politics, uh, funnily enough. On one hand, people towards the left, including President-elect Biden, see the section as, you know, wrongly protecting big tech from accountability despite lax content moderation practices. On the other hand, people towards the right, including obviously the president and his allies, see the section as protecting big tech, yes, despite exceedingly interventionist content moderation practices. So per an interview of uh, Professor Jonathan Zittrain um, of Harvard Law School on the Lawfare podcast, these contradictory policy bases for a repeal of Section 230 especially underline the need for policymakers um, to clearly identify the problem they seek to solve in relation to tech companies and thus devise a clear regulatory regime that sets clear incentives for what they want a tech company or a platform to do, whether this you know, um, regime features 230 or, is it, or it doesn't. Professor Zittrain argues that lawmakers have to be aware that repealing Section 230 would make a platform liable for content regardless of the degree of good faith content moderation they do. It would also be curious if Section 230 is repealed to incentivise less censorship by platforms because a repeal would make them, in effect, liable for unrelated issues if they moderate the content of, as in this case, a sympathiser with right-wing terrorists, because the platform would, in this case, be acting in a more interventionist way, like a newspaper. Either way, by making it harder for technological platforms to grow unchecked because they would be liable for the content posted by users, a repeal of Section 230, if it were to happen, could be an antitrust policy tool. Because when you think about it, unless the platforms can perform efficient, effective content moderation at scale, they would unlikely become the digital conglomerates that they are today, like Facebook and Google. On the other hand, note that the Facebooks and Twitters of the market 
could benefit from a repeal of Section 230 because they have built comprehensive content moderation infrastructures and uh, practices, thus entrenching their dominance in relevant markets. The the way that, you know, um, uh, having to comply with a lot of uh, regulation favours incumbents because they have those compliance structures and processes already in place. They could, as argued by Harvard Law School's Evelyn Dueck, even license their content moderation capability as a service to smaller, newer platforms that have insufficient resources and thus open up a significant revenue stream. Point is, unless specific laws that regulate how companies regulate content are passed, say in the manner of Australia's Criminal Code Amendment Sharing of Abhorrent Violent Material Act 2019 Commonwealth, one should note that if they want to understand the decision-making of companies like Twitter, they should note that the companies in question may primarily consider contract and corporate law issues to guide their decision-making. I'll leave the conversation about the impact of platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube on information environments for another day. But anywho, you know, folks, what do y'all make of this? Is the repeal of Section 230 the silver bullet? Should the human right of freedom of expression be applied to technological platform operators that are, you know, companies, not governments? If so, how? And, you know, folks, it has been a tough week or so for democracy, so um, we'll end this story on a lighter note, namely what I consider one of the greatest headlines ever written, this time from news outlet Vice, the guy who flew a Confederate flag in the Capitol has predictably surrendered. Our second article comes from Daniel Hurst of The Guardian. Australia to toughen export controls over fears technology could fall into the hands of foreign armies. And folks, just to flag, this podcast has covered the issue of defence export controls before. Um, In its very first episode, back in February 2020, we covered the passage of legislation in the United States, which requires the Department of State to report to the US Congress on its regulation of the licensing regime for the export of cyber tools and capabilities. So in the context of national security risk surrounding the Australian higher education and research sectors, which I will refer to as the sectors, the Commonwealth Department of Defence, which I will refer to as Defence, is considering how to strengthen the regulation of the export of technologies that can be used by foreign militaries including so-called dual-use goods or items that are, quote, designed or adapted for military purposes. So, a bit of context. Defence is looking at recommending amendment to the Defence Trade Controls Act 2012 Commonwealth, which I will call the DTCA, which is the regulation in question, was highlighted in its submission to the inquiry of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security international security risks affecting the sectors, which I will call the PJCIS inquiry. Per the explanatory memorandum for the bill which contained the original DTCA, the law implements the Australia-USA Treaty Concerning Defence Trade Corporation and seeks to bring Australian export control law in line with global best practice 
as well as Australia's obligations under international export control frameworks for arms and dual-use items. The European Commission, just to note, defines dual-use items as goods, quote, software and technology that can be used for both civilian and military applications. This term is interchangeable with dual-use goods and technologies um, in, this, in my analysis. The international frameworks uh, that I referred to include the WASNA, I hope I pronounced it right, arrangement on export controls for conventional arms and dual-use goods and technologies, the Australia Group, the Nuclear Suppliers Group, and Missile Technology Control Regime. Per Defence Export Controls, the agency within defence which enforces the Australian regime, the DTCA, quote, controls the supply, publication and brokering of tangible and intangible military and dual-use goods and technologies. The law creates offences to supply, publish or broker goods and technologies listed on the Defence and Strategic Goods List without a permit from the Minister for Defence. That list is an instrument, uh, the Defence and Strategic Goods List 2019, made by the Minister under paragraph 112, subsection 2A, paragraph AA of the Customs Act 1901 Commonwealth. The DTCA is a source of Australian export control law alongside the Customs Act 1901 Commonwealth section 112BA, the Customs Prohibited Exports Regulations 1958, Commonwealth Regulation 13 bracket E hyphen EK, and the Weapons of Mass Destruction Prevention of Proliferation Act 1995, Commonwealth. Per Defence's submission to the PJCIS inquiry, a 2018 review of the DTCA pointed to shortcomings in the law, including, quote, lack of control over the transfer of sensitive technology to foreign entities in Australia. Defence stated that it is engaging, quote, with government, industry, research and university representatives to figure out how to remedy these issues, quote, while not unnecessarily restricting trade, research and international collaboration. At paragraph 7, however, Defence, quote, recognises that Australian universities and academics are attractive targets for foreign interference given their access to sensitive information, research in a range of fields, and the resulting intellectual property. The foreign interference and espionage risk faced by the sectors is especially live because per Domestic Intelligence Agency um, of Australia, ASIO's submission to the PJCIS inquiry, quote, foreign governments are seeking information about Australia's capabilities, including Australian research and technology. This is within the overall context of a, quote, pervasive and enduring espionage and foreign interference threat to Australian interests. Note that acts of foreign interference are defined by Section 4 of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation Act 1979 Commonwealth, namely, and I quote, activities relating to Australia that are carried on by or on behalf of, are directed or subsidised by, or are undertaken in active collaboration with a foreign power, being activities that A, are clandestine or deceptive, and uh, and one, are carried on for intelligence purposes, two, are carried on for the purposes of affecting political or governmental processes, or three, are otherwise detrimental to the interests of Australia, or B, involve a threat to any person. 
According to ASIO, Australia's sectors are an attractive target because their outputs drive creation of, quote, proprietary and other sensitive information critical to the development of new technologies, medicines, techniques and practices that are fundamental to the future of Australia's economy, military capabilities and security. The sectors being, you know, um, comprising rather open and collaborative institutions um, can be exploited by foreign research partners, quote, with differing political, cultural and moral values for the latter partners' uh, gain. Such partners have included and do include, uh, as a matter of context, institutions that work or are affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and its military arm, the People's Liberation Army, or PLA. This was writ large in July 2017, when concerns were raised about the University of Technology Sydney's $20 million partnership with the China Electronics Group Corporation, or CETC. Uh, CETC is a Chinese state-owned company that engages in commercial activity, but also uh, does a bit of building of military hardware like bombs, guided missiles, satellites, and electric warf- electronic warfare rather technologies. The UTS partnership was in big data science, which could be, of course, leveraged by CETC and by extension the PLA and the CCP to enhance the Chinese surveillance state or indeed the efficiency of PLA weapons targeting systems, for instance. Note that an entity affiliated with CETC, CETC 54, which was highly involved in this partnership, has been listed by the American Department of Commerce as a, quote, military end-use entity, the legal effect under US law being that um, any partnership with that entity has to be subject to US governmental review. Australian education and research institutions must generally be wary of partnerships with Chinese institutions per research by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE, in light of the CCP's acceleration of military-civil fusion, which includes efforts to build, quote, links between China's civilian universities, military and security agencies. In this regard, at least 15 civilian Chinese universities have participated in quote, cyber attacks, illegal exports or espionage, while China's defence industry conglomerates are, quote, supervising agencies of nine universities and have sent thousands of their employees to train abroad. There is thus increasing risk that the PLA or Chinese intelligence services can build on work by Western institutions with Chinese universities to further mass surveillance, human rights abuses or other military purposes in China. One should note that the aggressive modernization, uh, as a matter of context, of the Chinese armed forces under Xi Jinping operates in the context of the president's uh, China dream, which focuses on a, quote, strong army dream. Per respected strategic thinker Michael Pillsbury, Xi is, quote, closely connected to the nationalist superhawks in the Chinese military who want China to avenge decades of humiliation at the hands of foreigners by, um, if I can quote Professor Clive Hamilton, eclipsing the United States as the dominant economic, political, and eventually military power. It could be argued that the need for at least greater scrutiny of uh, partnerships between Australian and foreign institutions is also underlined by, according to ASIO, threats directed at researchers and their families 
by persons wanting the former's uh, sensitive research, quote, to be provided to a foreign state, academics self-censoring units of study to avoid, quote, adverse outcomes such as cuts by foreign funding or threats from individuals who may be linked to a foreign government, and cyber attacks used uh, as a means uh, to try and steal sensitive, quote, Australian intellectual property. Such activities can make a compromise uh, of valuable or sensitive research output of an Australian institution more likely, or even an actual fact, which is serious in light of the potential to, quote, cause significant and long-term damage to Australia, including to our international reputation, our economy, and our national security. Such factors arguably contributed to plans by the Commonwealth to designate the sectors as critical infrastructure under proposed reform to the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act 2018 Commonwealth, which could include a mandatory obligation for institutions to report breaches of cyber resilience, as well as the power of federal agencies to help them during a breach. So folks, Defence reported uh, that the 2018 review of the DTCA disclosed, quote, a general lack of awareness of the DTCA regime and that concerning the definition of dual-use goods, something which universities raised, quote, as a concern. Reassuringly, Defence submitted that the sectors, quote, uh, have started to develop a better understanding of the impacts of foreign interference, undisclosed foreign influence, data theft, and espionage. This is encouraging as a stepping stone to the building of, quote, capacity to identify and mitigate security threats. Defence also pointed to programs and measures, quote, to support industry and academia to strengthen their security practices to protect Australia's investment in defence-related research. Uh, These include the Defence Security Principles Framework, the Defence Research Collaboration Security Framework, and the the Research, rather, Collaboration Security University Best Practice Working Group, which was established by the Defence's own Uh, Unit Defence Science and Technology Group. Along the lines of defence, in its own submission to the PJCIS inquiry, ASIO highlighted the potential for the sectors to better tackle risks concerning their activities by the agency providing the sectors uh, information on what, quote, areas of research require protection. ASIO nonetheless pointed uh, as well to causes for optimism in efforts to counter foreign interference risk faced by the sectors. Already leading the Counter-Foreign Interference Task Force, ASIO works in partnership with the sectors to empower them to better deal with this type of risk. This has borne fruit in the University Foreign Interference Task Force's designing the, quote, Guidelines to Counter Foreign Interference in the Australian University Sector, which implements ASIO's advice um, to counter foreign interference targeting universities Quote, by promoting a positive safety and security culture. ASIO also spearheaded the awareness-raising campaign Think Before You Link to make Australians, including um, members of the sectors, more aware of the foreign interference and espionage threat they face, namely the actual targeting of people through social media and professional networking platforms. Rather than seeking to, of course, discourage all forms of collaboration, ASIO in this way provided practical advice on how Australians should act if they suspect they are being targeted. So folks, what are the key takeaways? Well, firstly, uh, just I note 
that defences working on mechanisms to plug gaps in the export controls regime arguably reminds us of one reason the DTCA was enacted all the way back in, uh, in the first place. Per the explanatory memorandum for the bill containing the original legislation, the law vitally extended regulatory jurisdiction to, for instance, the intangible, quote, transfer of technology relating to defence and strategic goods, such as, you know, over the internet. It is, I guess, like any other policy process which seeks to update regulatory frameworks in light of operational, national security and or technological realities. Secondly, I note that the policy process to strengthen the DTCA arguably operates in the broader context of defence and strategic ties between Australia and the United States, arguably given that, as I have said earlier, one of the original purposes of the law was to affect the Defence Trade Corporation Treaty between the two close strategic and military allies. Both countries recently concluded a bilateral treaty to, um, in the words of a US Cyber Command press release, continuously develop a virtual cyber training range together, which is a continuation of both nations' record of strengthening each other's capabilities, including military capabilities, in the cyber domain. We must not forget, of course, that both countries are members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance, which also includes the POMs, Canadians and Kiwis. With India and Japan, both are part of the revamped Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, aka the Quad, which, among other things, is working towards greater cooperation um, in cyberspace and among the four countries' uh, armed forces as part of efforts to ensure a stable, peaceful Indo-Pacific region. Hence, the Commonwealth, uh, I argue, would be cognizant of the need to prevent the theft of uh, sensitive technology developed by Australian institutions, as well as, you know, the need to mitigate the uh, foreign interference and espionage threat that targets them uh, in order to prevent the potential undermining of uh, said alliances and groupings and their work in advancing Australia's strategic and national security interests. One must reiterate also the need for efforts to tackle foreign interference and espionage targeting the sectors to be holistic and follow a whole-of-government approach. This is because of the inherent nature of the threat of foreign interference, uh, and you could argue by extension espionage, as a, quote, problem of the highest order, per the submission of the Commonwealth Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to the PJCIS inquiry. The problem itself is multifaceted and complex, as one can imagine. One can take the example, again, of the risk posed by the Chinese state, Per Chinese State Council guidelines from 2015, it views higher education as a, quote, forward battlefield in ideological work and providing talent guarantees and intelligent support for the realisation of the Chinese dream of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. In this spirit, the CCP administers over 200 talent programs that have recruited 60,000 scientists worldwide to Chinese institutions between 2008 and 2020, per ASPE research. These programs seek to individually contract with uh, overseas scientists, thus potentially reducing the chance of the arrangement's detection by counter-espionage agencies, potentially breaching the, uh, the scientists' employment contracts with their original institutions, 
and potentially facilitating unlawful technology transfers. Contracted scientists may fail to disclose they're being recruited, writ large in more than 20 scientists being charged by US prosecutors in relation to these programs and their alleged intentions to act for the benefit of Chinese state interests while receiving US taxpayer funds for their research, uh, offences including visa fraud, grant fraud and economic espionage. Folks, it takes a network of government agencies, including those on the Counter Foreign Interference Task Force, to fight such a significant threat. Bringing their own unique capabilities and expertise to the table, be it in specially, specially scrutinising visa applications in relation to collaboration on sensitive technology and dual-use items research, to running counter-espionage investigations against efforts by foreign intelligence or military entities to recruit Australian researchers as agents, or just to educating the sectors on how to identify and manage the risks they face. It also involves uh, you know, following a multi-stakeholder approach with sectors, since they are you know, at the front line of the espionage and foreign interference threat facing the sectors. This is arguably why the University Foreign Interference Task Force has equal university and government, including security agency, representation. Because again, you can't do this as a government alone. You need to work with the sectors. Both Defence and ASIO stressed uh, in this regard their intention to continue working with the sectors. ASIO and Defence, however, were careful to stress that policy responses must not unduly remove the international collaboration by Australian institutions, a, quote, hallmark of the higher education and research sector. The need, folks, to strike a balance between guarding against espionage and foreign interference, which is, you know, quite serious threats, as well as the ability uh, for our sectors to work with overseas institutions is live in light of how, per Universities Australia's submission to the PJCIS inquiry, global research and development spending is primarily centred around countries outside Australia. The sheer economics requires Australia to, quote, maintain its strategy of connecting globally to leverage the 99% of investment that occurs outside Australia. Additionally, Universities Australia highlights that international collaboration drives 78% of Australia's mostly highly cited publications, reflective of the underlying need for Australian researchers to be able to work with foreign counterparts through channels that, quote, provide the knowledge and skills that enable universities to greatly leverage the domestic investment in research. So folks, a lot of stuff going on here. What do y'all make of this? And in particular, how should this balance between you know, countering foreign interference and espionage, but also allowing our sectors to work with overseas institutions. Uh, How should the balance be struck? Let me know. So there you have it. Another episode of A Techno-Legal Update, our tin-pot little podcast dancing at the intersection of law and technology, all wrapped up for another month. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Again, um, especially with the second story, pretty dense with law and the relevant policy context. So thank you for sticking with us. Um, As usual, please send your feedback, your comments, your suggestions uh, to me and the show on Twitter. 
Um, me, it's uh, at Ravi Rocks with two Ks. The show's Twitter is at Tech Legal Update. Um, folks, please, you know, if you love the show, please subscribe to it on your chosen platform for listening to podcasts, rate it, review us um, as well. And please recommend us um, to your networks because, you know, the more folks we get involved um, in this uh, policy conversation that we try to have um, in every episode, the the merrier. And I'm sure we can learn um, from our listeners uh, going along as well. Um, as I said at the top of the show, please check out our LinkedIn and Medium pages. They are linked to in the show notes. Just note for the Medium blog, um, we will be putting up uh, our thoughts and analyses of stories that won't be directly covered in an episode of the show um, because, you know, we realize that we can't cover everything um, in one episode's audio. So we want to use the Medium blog as an as an additional channel for us to, to share our thoughts on what's happening. So folks, um, with nothing really substantive further to say, please look after one another, respect the health guidelines where you are, stay safe, Go well and cheers.